You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I am Mark Innet-Ponhuis. And I'm Leo Stevens. And welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. What have you got for us today? Hi, Mark. Well, I'm going to have a quick overview of venture capital. So I need to start one step further out on this one and talk about investment funds in general, which are where a large group of investors pool their money together and hire a management team to help determine what investments to make and manage those investments on an ongoing basis. Venture capital funds are a class of investment fund that explicitly targets its investments into startups and entrepreneurial businesses. From the perspective of an entrepreneur, obtaining a VC investment is a major business milestone as it can provide millions of dollars in new funding as well as access to networks and company directors that improve governance, accelerate business growth and help guide the business towards a successful exit like selling the company or listing it on the stock exchange. It's important to note that in order to be an accredited fund, each VC fund must have a written investment thesis that lays out the kind of companies they're looking for and the way it will make investments. This information is legally required for the fund's investors, but it's also incredibly useful for the entrepreneurs themselves who can familiarise themselves with the fund's objectives and also its managers, even before they enter a room to pitch their idea. For an entrepreneur, dealing with a VC is a much more formal, structured and professional process than they would have experienced with friends and family or angel investors, but it also provides access to a larger pool of funding. For this reason, VC firms tend to fill the later rounds of funding for entrepreneurial businesses as they grow and mature. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. It's again an interesting phrase, the venture capitalists. So let's say... um, I quit my job today at the university and I want to become a venture capitalist. How do I do that? I guess there's two quite different answers to that question, depending on whether you are establishing your own fund or whether you are joining an existing fund. I think most likely you'd be joining an existing fund. There's one called Uniseed, which particularly targets funding coming out of universities or projects coming out of universities, I should say. Um, so in that case, you would apply to the, the managers, the owners of Uniseed and say, hey, I'm interested in becoming an investment manager at Uniseed. They might have a job available. And then if you are selected, you would then become one of those people who goes out to prospective new entrepreneurs and, and university researchers and appraises their ideas to see if they're worthy of funding as a startup. I thought you were going to say, oh, you don't have enough money to do that, Mark. I guess... The other follow-on question is, where does a venture capital get its capital from? Yeah, well, I should definitely clarify that. Yeah, you do not need money to be a venture capitalist at all. You're investing the money of other people who put their money into the fund. Most venture capitalists would be expected to have some of their money invested in their own fund, but it's certainly not like angel investing where you are using 100% your own money. So actually following on for that, so being a venture capitalist is a much safer in terms of risk than an angel investor is. An angel investor puts up 100% of their own money. As a venture capitalist, you're only going to play with other money. Is that correct? Generally, yeah. Like I said, you might contribute some of your investment into your own fund, but even more so, you are drawing a salary as a venture capitalist. You draw a salary from the management expenses of that pool of funds. Whereas with an angel investor, you've got no salary. 
So yes, it is a much safer career path to be in a venture capital firm than it is to be an angel investor. And where does the accreditation come from? Is there a peak body that, that accredits a venture capitalist firm? There, there are certainly overseeing bodies that look after this. ASIC, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, would be one of them. I'm not sure if they would also fall under bodies associated with financial planning. They may do. But certainly, yes, they, they will be overseen by peak bodies around investments and accounting standards. So you mentioned there's one specifically UNICEED for university. Does every venture capital company have a specific target area? Yes, and that falls back to that idea of having an investment thesis and a written objective. So you imagine it from the perspective of one of the investors who are putting their money into this fund. They want to know where that fund's investing, who's running it, and um, how their money will be allocated. So that does have to be laid out quite explicitly so then the fund is constrained to acting within those boundaries as well. And, and who might be the people that would put up their money for a venture capital firm? Um, high net worth individuals are part of it, but probably a bigger one that you might not be expecting is super funds. So quite a lot of superannuation funds will allocate a portion of their portfolio into these venture capital funds. And the banks themselves will also put some of the money that they have taken in deposits into these allocations as well. So that's probably all we can cover on VC funds. What have you got for us, Mark? I've got something different for you, Leo. It's called the National Health and Medical Research Council. So in Australia, the majority of the funding for research comes from two different organizations. The Australian Research Council, which focuses mostly on sciences, social science, humanities, engineering, then there's also the National Health and Medical Research Council, which focuses exclusively on health and medicine. The NHMRC provides funding in five main areas. So you got your project grants, which mostly go to individual researchers and their groups. You got targeted calls, which are something like for topical areas, for example, mental health. You got international collaborations, which speak for itself. And you have infrastructure support that can fund both equipment and institutes. And then finally, there is a very specific program for dementia research. Last year, according to the information that is available in their annual report, they handed out about $760 million in funding over a thousand new research grants in no less than 23 different funding schemes. However, 60% of those funds were awarded in a single scheme that goes towards funding about 500 project grants. The evaluation process can take six months or more. The chances of success are very, very low, probably around 15, 16%. So you don't really have good odds. And it is, uh, not, it is actually very straightforward to draw a parallel with the world of business because one of, some of these grants are specifically encouraging the translation of research outcomes into practice and close the gap between research and industry. So, I mean, there's a lot of analogies between this body and the Australian Research Council. 
Do you have any sense of why Australia developed this dual system of one for health and one for everything else? Is there a history there? That is a very good question to which I don't know the answer to, other than it's probably arisen out of need. And it is actually, if you're in the grey area where you develop materials for health, I think you can get a ruling from the bodies to let you explicitly know which council you should you should apply for. But there's a very strong demarcation line between the councils. So you cannot apply for funding from both? You can, but you have to address different things. So if you are aiming to do a clinical trial on a material that you develop, you could not go to the Australian Research Council because as soon as you venture into that area of health and medicine, you have to go to the NHMRC. Are the ways that grants are appraised pretty similar between the two? Yeah, they all go on. They look at at the standard things such as the track record of the researchers or the institutions involved, the quality of the project grant, the outcomes for Australia. Uh, Those are general things. And then they go out to a number of assessors that can be as, as few as two and as many as five. And then that also gets assessed by someone from the agency itself. Then you get ranked. Then they agree on a number of fundable proposals. And then they only usually fund a smaller number of those fundable proposals because there's generally more fundable proposals than there is money to fund the proposals, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I guess as a final question, in terms of the scale of these two, you might have mentioned it already, but... What, are, what is the size comparison between the NHMRC and the ARC? In terms of funding, they're roughly similar, although in 2019, the amount that the NHMRC awarded was about 150 to $200 million less than what they normally award. And I believe for 2020, they're handing out 850 to $900 million. So they're roughly comparable. All right. Well, thank you for that overview of the NHMRC, Mark. And that's all we've got time for in the brief today. We'll catch you next week. See ya.